John chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 35. It says, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This last week, Lisa asked me a question. She said, are you content with your life? I don't know, maybe it's one of those worried about a midlife crisis things or something. Because, you know, I've officially hit midlife as long as I live to be 116. (laughs) So, (laughs) But I I told her, I said, yeah, I'm I'm very content with my life, happy with my life. I will admit that over the last few years, that I've looked back on my life and I've thought about my life and where I am today and, and that kind of thing and evaluated. I think probably everybody does that. And think, well, where, where am I at with what I believe God's called me to and everything? How, do I, how does this set with me? How do I like it? And you know what? I, I like it just fine. In fact, I love it. I'm very content in it. You know, I was thinking about that because as I look through this passage, I'm finding some people making some big decisions. People leaving. As Jesus begins to call some disciples, this isn't actually kind of to the point yet in his ministry where they actually come and be with him full time, but it's the beginnings of that. These guys are actually going to get some acquaintance with him. They're going to kind of go back to their their fishing businesses and stuff like that. And then he's going to come along and catch them at work later on and say, all right, come and follow me. And then that's the time when they're just going to leave and follow him completely. But he is, he is calling them to a, a level of it at this point, and it's, so that level is going to deepen, I guess, is what I'm saying as time goes on. And you know, as I look back at my life, I came to Christ when I was 20 years old and began to follow him. Did not realize at that time what following him was going to entail, that it was going to lead me halfway across the country and, and put me in a position in a, of pastoring a church and those kind of things. Those ideas terrified me back in the day. But you know what? He's so worth it. He's so worth it. And that's when I look at this, I see Jesus reaching out into these people's lives and just telling these different people to follow Him and they just drop the things and they follow Him. That, that is an amazing man that can have that kind of a response among the people. And that's what, as we look at this passage today, I think that's what's being revealed to us is a man worth following. If you commit your life to Christ, you put your faith in Him, your trust in Him and follow Him, you will not regret it. It is a worthwhile life. It is a good life. It's not always going to be the easiest life. We're not like water flowing through a pipe that just takes the easiest path. 
There's going to be some struggles and some trials along the way, but it is a good life. Christ is worth following. Well, as we look at it here through this passage, I see three evidences of that truth. And the first evidence that I see is amazing testimonies. Throughout this passage, we just see one person after another weigh in on who Christ is. He refers to Him as the Lamb of God. He's going to be referred to as Rabbi, which we're told means teacher. He's going to be referred to as the Messiah and also Christ. Both of those words mean anointed. He said this is the one that Moses and the other prophets wrote about. He's going to be called the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. These are not ordinary testimonies. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of Man. He's the one that all the Old Testament is written about. That's who this is. These are amazing testimonies. You know, we stumbled across something uh, yesterday on our way back. Lisa was kind of scrolling through Facebook and stuff, and she stumbled across this post, and, and this, uh, this lady had put on there about Jesus and who, who is Jesus. She said, in her opinion, that Jesus was a good man trying to accomplish good things. In order to accomplish the good things, the good results that he wanted, he had to trick people into thinking that he did miracles. And you know what? When you look at these testimonies about Christ... They're all, he's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. They're not, he was a good man. Oh, he was a good teacher. They're not, he was a nice guy. He was a genius. He was somebody really smart. None of that. You know, when I thought about that first, that statement that this lady had made about Jesus, my first thought was how it's just not only unlikely, it's just absolutely untrue. Because Christ doing all these signs, John calls them, in front of people, how could he trick people into thinking he did these things? You want to try to trick somebody into thinking you're walking on water? Well, at one point, he takes one boy's lunch and feeds over 5,000 people in front of it, right in front of everybody. He had to be better than, way better than David Copperfield to be able to do that and, and, and pass it off and, and get away with it. Somebody who's sick is raised, blind person, blind from birth even, and 40 years old, never seen in their whole life, given sight. The religious leaders, as they go pursuing around, they turn over every rock trying to find how there's a scam in this somewhere and they could not find one. It's just, it's just totally impossible that Jesus tricked all these people into believing He did these miracles as opposed to doing them. But not only that, I found that the statement itself has a real conflict in it because it starts off saying Jesus was such a good person. He was just a really good man wanting to accomplish really good things and so He had to totally deceive everybody. He had to trick everybody in order to accomplish the things that he wanted to accomplish. I'm thinking, he started out the statements by saying he's a totally good man, and then he's a liar on a huge scale. And it has to go the way he wants, so he's kind of a narcissist as well. And so uh, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, that's, that's the same thing C.S. Lewis pointed out many, many years ago. He says for people to say that Jesus is a good teacher, he said he didn't leave that option open to us. He claimed to be the Son of God, and he did the miracles to back it up. If somebody claims to be the Son of God and they know that they're not, then they're a deceiver. And that doesn't make a good person. It doesn't make a good teacher. If somebody believes himself to be the Son of God, but they're not, then they're crazy. That doesn't make a good teacher either. And so he said, look, Jesus really left us only three options. He's either the, the Lord, who he claimed to be improved, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. But this idea that he's a good person, but yet not the person he claimed to be, is illogical. Well, as we look through this group of people, these are people that are seeing him firsthand. They're not a people, that, a person that's forming an opinion 2,000 years later. These are people that were actually there, that encountered Christ, that saw Christ, met him. And these are what they put forward as who he is. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, 
the one Moses wrote about, the Son of Man. The first one that we see that is made of him is actually a repeat from the day before. Remember the day before he'd come across John the Baptist, and John the Baptist pointed him out and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Now this, the next day, John sees him again and makes the same statement. Now, you know, the idea of the Lamb of God would be very familiar to these people. The Lamb of God has its beginning all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were told that the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. But the day they ate of that fruit in the garden, they did not die. Now, you can argue, and I think rightly so, that they died spiritually because they were separated from God that day. They were kicked out of the garden. And the Bible tells us that just as physical death is a separation of our soul from our body, spiritual death is our separation of our soul from God. And the Bible tells us that before coming to Christ, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, we're separated from God. And so we do not have that spiritual life. So you can't argue that they died spiritually that day. They were kicked out of the presence of God. But why did they not die that day? Well, they didn't die that day because God allowed something else to die in their place. God in His mercy killed probably a sheep or some animal because they tried to cover their guilt, cover their sin with fig leaves, which is not going to work, very temporary at best. God takes and He makes appropriate coverings for them and He covers their guilt and their shame, their nakedness. But in order to get that covering, the innocent had to die. The innocent dies for the guilty. And we see the, the beginning of the concept of this, of this lamb and this what we call a substitutionary atonement. One takes another's place that the innocent lamb takes the place of the guilty person to provide a covering for their sins. The Bible makes it clear that that's all it could do is God allowed it to give a temporary covering and it wouldn't actually be taken away until the real deal, Christ, comes as the real lamb of God. But that's where we first see it. We also see shortly after that between Adam and Eve's kids with Cain and Abel that Abel brings the appropriate sacrifice. We see the same thing in Noah when he gets off the ark and and the first thing he does is build an altar and offer up sacrifices before God on that altar. Abraham is told after finally getting the son of promise, he'd waited 25 years for Isaac to be born. And then God comes to Abraham and he says, now take your son, your only son whom you love, and follow me for three days. We're going to go, you're going to sacrifice him. And so Abraham, for three days, Isaac's as good as dead in his mind as he heads to this place that he's going to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac is a picture that one day God would take his son to the cross. And his son would be dead for three days before he would rise again. But before Abraham takes the knife and sacrifices his son Isaac, God stops him and there's a ram stuck in the thicket. And so the ram is taken and sacrificed upon the altar. And so we see it in Abraham's experience as well. And then, of course, we find a lot of it in the days of Moses. We find the Passover. We see that killing of the sheep there as well. And then, of course, as they set up the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple, you have a host of things. You have the daily sacrifice that was offered. You have the sacrifice for sin that people would bring and offer up for, for any particular sins that they committed. You have the festival-type sacrifices like when they would celebrate Passover or the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Booths and the sacrifices that would be offered in those things. So the point is, over the years... Millions and millions and millions of lambs sacrificed, dying in the place of people to cover, to take away the sins of the people. And so when John looks up at Jesus, the easiest way to describe Jesus is, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. That was testified also in, in prophets. I think, I think Isaiah. Isaiah 53, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed 
And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he is taken away, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Isaiah said, Look, we're the ones that were like sheep that went astray, but Jesus is the one that's that's going to like a sheep be smitten for our transgressions. In other words, he's gonna he's gonna die for our sins. You know, in the book of Revelation, as we get toward the end times and the events begin to unfold, Jesus is consistently referred to as the Lamb. And we're not going to go through all of them because there's a lot. When you hit Revelation chapter seven, verses nine and ten, at this point all of a sudden there's a new group of people in heaven. There's this great crowd from every, every tribe and tongue and nation. And it says, After this I, be, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, it's totally fitting to continue to refer to Jesus as the Lamb. Why? Because that's what provides our salvation. Notice what they're saying. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Because it's Him playing the part of the Lamb. Him laying down His life. Him being sacrificed for our sins that provides for our salvation. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it does the same thing. Christ is the Lamb based on all that Old Testament history where the Lamb was continually the innocent dying for the guilty. The Lamb is a substitutionary payment for our sin. It was prophesied by the prophets. It was demonstrated in the temple and the tabernacle and all the way back from the Garden of Eden all the way up through. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, that's the Lamb. All those other ones that came before are a picture. They're a shadow. They're a glimpse. That's the real deal. He's the one that came to actually not just cover our sins, take them away. And as we go forward from Him here, He'll be continued to be looked at as the Lamb, as that sacrifice, all the way up into the new heavens and the new earth and throughout all, throughout all of eternity. We'll be celebrating what the Lamb did for us. Well, not only is He referred to as the Lamb, He's also referred to as the King of Israel. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, maybe what Nathaniel was thinking about at the time that he proclaimed this, says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And many commentators think that Nathaniel was probably thinking of this verse when he said this because it contains both of the things that he calls him. He says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And that's exactly the two titles that are given in this psalm. Speaking of the Messiah, all the Jewish people were very familiar with the concept of King and they're all looking forward to Christ coming and, and ruling and reigning as King. Zechariah 9.9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you righteous and having salvation is He humble and mounted on a donkey on the colt of a foal of a donkey. Also, Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for Me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And so he's looked at as the king as well. So the Son of God, the King, 
He's the Lamb. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. This kind of dates back to Daniel. Daniel's looking forward into the future and seeing some things that would happen. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus would use this term more than any other to describe himself. Shows his connection to us and as our Savior, as the Messiah, which this passage also points uh, to him as, calls him the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And so all these terms, amazing testimonies. The point is, you often hear testimonies of people that will say things about other people where they say, that, that lady is just super nice. Or she's super smart. Or that guy is that guy is is very helpful. He's always willing to lend a hand for somebody in need. You know, those are great things to say about somebody. They're great things to have said about you. You don't find people saying, he's the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the Christ. But with Christ, well, of course, it's fitting because that's who he is. But that's exactly as all these people meet him and many of these people meeting him for the very first time, that's what that's the conclusion that they come to. Not only are there amazing testimonies, but there's also that we see within the passage strong reactions. The first reaction that we see is that they followed. He can walk right up to somebody and say, follow me, and they do it. That's pretty amazing. Now, there's a, there's a little bit of background to it, right? Because the first ones are guys that were following John. John the Baptist, that is. And John, the one writing this, uh, this gospel, is one of those. And so, John and Andrew are following John the Baptist and they're learning from him. And now John the Baptist says, that's the guy. That's the one I've been telling you about. The one who I can't lose his shoe. That's him. The one that is ranks above me because he was before me. That's him. They're curious. So they go follow Christ to see who Christ is. So they just follow. You know, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. When I was in Bible college, there were two different times where I had friends that I'd had in high school that called me on the phone that said, I heard you're on some school studying the Bible. Well, I just have to know what happened. Because that's a, that's a huge change for who you were. And they were right. It was a huge change for who I was. They said, I just, I just wanted to know. And I started to tell them. And they both kind of, well, I didn't really want to get preached at. And I said, I'm not preaching at you. I'm just telling you what happened. You know what happened to me? Jesus Christ happened to me. That's what happened. And everything else that's followed from that has just been uh, uh, an outcome of me following Him in, in what I believe the path that He is setting before me. I'm just learning and I'm following. That's what these guys are doing. These guys are going to leave family businesses to follow Christ. These guys are going to make huge decisions for following Christ. So they followed. Not only do they follow, but they also recruited. They recruited others. They do what's common, right? When you first came to Christ, when you first put your faith in Christ... What does your mind go to? It goes to other people that you care about that need to know this good news, right? And so what do we do? We get, we get sharing the good news with our family members and with our friends and our co-workers. I remember the, the Sunday I came to Christ, the Monday, the very next Monday, the next morning, I was at work sharing what had happened to me with everybody at work. It says in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah which means a Christ. He brought him to Jesus. I love that. What was Andrew's first response? Got to go get my brother. I'm going to go get my brother and bring him to Jesus. You know, that's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to bring people to Jesus. Philip would go to Nathaniel and say, hey, we found the Christ. Philip tells him it's, it's 
Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. It's kind of cool. Nathaniel is told Jesus is the son of Joseph. Nathaniel will meet Jesus and say Jesus is the son of God. Nathaniel is told and he's from Nazareth, and Nazareth did not have the best of reputations. Nathaniel's from Cana, which is only about four miles away from Nazareth, so probably a little bit of rivalry between the two towns. And Nathaniel's response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What does Philip just say? Come and see. He doesn't argue with him. doesn't try to plead a point. Come and take a look. And Nathaniel comes to see. That's really what our job is, right? You just need to tell people your experience and say, you know what? Come and see. Just take a look. You can do that in a variety of different ways. You can do that through sharing some Bible passages with them, giving them your own testimony of what it meant for you to come to Christ. Just invite them to church where they'll hear about it here. There's a variety of ways, but all you're doing is just trying to introduce them to Jesus. You're just trying to bring them to Christ. Well, recruiting people means you're pretty much on board. It's something you're excited about. The last point I get actually just by thinking ahead, and the point here is that they remained. We're at the very beginning of a context. We're at the beginning of a long process, right? Jesus is going to collect... Twelve different peoples that he's going to call to be his disciples, a learner, and then an apostle, a sent one, somebody that's sent with a message. And you know what's amazing is that in all of this, other than Judas Iscariot, who was a, an exception because he was never genuinely a disciple, so of the eleven, none of them left. Nobody ever got disgruntled and turned away. In fact, all of them would be willing to lose their own life to continue his ministry after he was gone. If Christ is who He says He is, then that makes total sense. Of course they would never leave. If Christ isn't who He says He is, then every one of them should have left. And you'd expect them to. Because you know what? If this is all just a big myth, then these guys would have been the liars behind the lie. But you know what? It's not like they went through their life in a life of ease. It's not like they made a huge killing financially off of this. Quite the reverse. looks like it took them away from a thriving family business and kind of put them into poverty. And then not only that, they become hunted people. They became martyred people. Nobody's willing to lose their life for something they know is a lie. Nobody's willing to lose their life for, for a lie that they themselves are perpetuating. People lie to get out of trouble, not to get into trouble. And that's exactly what you see. And these disciples that we're seeing him gather at the very beginning are people that will lay down their lives for the truth of the gospel. That is a strong reaction. Well, then lastly, one thing that kind of is a contributor to why they would have this kind of a strong reaction. And this last thing is uncommon knowledge. Two amazing things happen within this passage. Andrew goes and get his brother Simon. He names him. Can you imagine the first thing you meet somebody and the first thing that they say to you is giving you a different name? He names him the rock. You don't just tolerate that just off of anybody. But apparently there's something in that that Peter recognized. This is a adequate description an insight into Peter's character that Jesus had, having never talked to him or met him before. It's kind of a weird deal with Nathaniel too, because Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him in verse 47, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. He makes a statement about Nathaniel's character, which seems to be right on track, because Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? But it's interesting because if you, if you look back, an Israelite indeed, where do they get the term Israelite from? The nation of Israel, obviously. The nation of Israel comes from Jacob. God takes Jacob's name and changes it to Israel. And so he says, now you're an Israelite in whom is no deceit. You know what the name Jacob means? The deceiver. <laughs> the slippery one. But Jacob had just deceived his brother Esau 
to get the family blessing and, and he deceived him for the, for the birthright. And, and so Jacob kind of acting out that part of the deceiver and Jesus says to Nathan, you're an Israelite that came from this deceiver in whom is no deceit. And that had to ring with Nathan that he seemed to pride himself in being straightforward and no deceit, no deceptive. But it wasn't necessarily the history of the whole nation. And so his pride in being an Israelite is a little bit of a on shaky ground, right? Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel's response to that is, You're the Son of God, the King of Israel. I'm dying to know what happened under that fig tree. Because we're not told. We're kept in the dark. Only Jesus and Nathaniel know. Maybe it'll be their eternal secret. Who knows? I'm going to try to get out of him. But what was it? I thought, you know, was it, was it some amazing devotional time? Did he have an amazing prayer? Maybe a time where he's feeling, God, where are you? Am I seen? Hagar would refer to God as the God who sees me. But Jesus says, well, you were under that fig tree. Whatever it was, that there was personal something, something that stood out in Nathaniel's life. Jesus says, I saw you there. Nathaniel's like, nobody can know that, save for God. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Maybe it was what happens next. Jesus makes this statement. Jesus says, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? He says, oh, you're going to see way, way more incredible things than that. And if you just read the rest of the Gospel of John, the different miracles you see are way, way more impressive than that, for sure. But Jesus makes a statement to him at the end. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's referring to a time in Jacob's life. He's referring all the way back into Genesis chapter 28. And when Jacob had just received his father, got the blessing, and now he knows, he found out that after the time of mourning for his father would be done, his brother's going to kill him. So his mom sends him off to the relative's house. As he's on the way, he just gets out from there. He's traveled one day's journey, and he's tired, and he lays down. There's only thing to prop his head up on is rock, and he goes to sleep. And he has this dream. And it says in Genesis 28, it says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! And this, and this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven." He has this dream and he sees a ladder and the ladder's on earth, but it reaches up to heaven and angels are ascending and descending upon it. And his conclusion at the end of that dream is that this place is none other than the house of God. And he says, this is the very gate of heaven. And so it's really kind of interpreted for us. What was his dream about? Well, it's pretty easy to see. A ladder is a, ladder is a way to something, Right. If you need to get up onto a roof, you lean a ladder against the house. It is the way to the roof from the ground. And he says, I saw angels ascending and descending. In other words, this is the place that heaven touches earth. There are several places like that in the Bible. 
the tabernacle was like that. The Shekinah glory of God. This is the place in heaven is touching the earth and dwelling among the children of Israel. And remember back earlier in John, we talked about how Jesus tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling among us. Jesus is that ladder. Jesus said, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know what? I, I wonder if when he was under that fig tree, if he was thinking about Jacob's dream. And he was wondering what exactly was the point of the dream. And Jesus tells him, this is the point of the dream. Now, whether or not that's actually what happened under the fig tree or not, it is the point of the dream. That ladder was just one more picture of Christ in the Old Testament. What is the way to heaven? It's the same thing he's going to tell him in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is that point where heaven touches earth. Jesus is that point, that access to heaven. He's the very gates of heaven. He's the home of God. And that's what he was explaining to Nathaniel. And so why do we see these people with those strong reactions? Is because of the things that they saw in Christ. Because Christ could at the moment that he met them, see right into them and tell them exactly what they were like. And so what did they do? They did what was logical. They did what was reasonable. They did what became natural. They turned and they followed him.